Prologue. A young man by the name of Jaden is abducted <laughs> by benevolent aliens, bioengineered to superhuman levels, and sent back to Earth years later to stop an alien invasion. 150,000 years ago, Darklonians began. Darklonians? <laughs> yeah. On, began, uh, there's so many. Um, Typos in this. Dark clonians began on an experimental dark energy, dark matter weapon that works only with carbon-based life forms. The organic subject would eventually die. 100,000 years ago, dark clonian probes sought out thousands of planets with life on them that could develop into intelligent life forms. The probes fired quadrillions of nanomoles into Earth's atmosphere. <laughs> What are, what are any of these nouns? <laughs> I don't know. The verbs are fine. The nanomoles hid inside the modern homo sapien brain. I don't know, man. This is bio sapien shit. You're reading Dianetics? No. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, folks, and welcome to the Antifada. It's me, Sean, here. I'm here with Andy. And we have a very special guest today. We have, of course, the famous, the infamous, the Rax King. Hello, Rax King. Hi there. I hope not infamous. Well, you have quite the presence online. I think your <laughs> your posting is very sweet and nice, though. I don't know why anybody could have any objections to it. <laughs> Thank you. That's really good propaganda. Thank you. You're not merely a poster, though. I mean, we're all posters. You also have uh, your own podcast, is that right? I do, yeah. I have uh, my podcast, Low Culture Boil, and I have a book coming out and a newsletter and just no free time, and that's all the things that I have. We'll put links to all that stuff in the show description. Today, we are here to talk about something very fun and very weird. We're talking about a local restaurant. Yeah, so I thought that low culture boil was like the Doughboys, where you just <laughs> went to fast food restaurants and talked about the hamburgers and the horsey sauces and such. Sure. Um, because I guess that was the original concept of it, but I didn't listen to it for a couple months. <laughs> uh, but that's not what you do. You talk about low culture things in general, including fast food, right? That's right. Yeah, I mean, we talk about food kind of a lot. We talk about food TV kind of a lot in particular. Uh, Fast casual restaurants, we're all big fans of Outback Steakhouse, Margaritaville, things of that nature. The so classics. You weren't too far off. Guy Fieri, famously. Fieri, please. Lots to say about Guy. <laughs> I think we need to be putting some respect on the pronunciation of Sir Guy Fieri's name. And I noticed you have a bunch of episodes where you claim to talk about dumpster diving, but you do not actually, <laughs> which uh, is, is pretty offensive true? to me. Yeah. Stealing valor from if the you Paches? ever actually want to talk about dumpster diving, you can have me on, um, or <laughs> you, know, you can keep being a poser. Up to you. I think that my preference is to continue stealing valor and just never credit the noble dumpster divers in any way. That's my preference. Well, that's disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> it's the people who steal valor from the dumpster divers who are disgusting. Yeah, people think that dumpster diving is disgusting, but really. <laughs> um, so today we went to uh, a very quirky Williamsburg eatery named Action Burger. Action Burger. And we're going to talk about that for a bit, and then we're going to talk about um, 
you know, we loved Action Burger. We want Action Burger to exist forever. We want it to survive and thrive. But, you know, uh, I saw a list uh, a few months ago of all of the, you know, restaurants that closed in North North Brooklyn and Williamsburg. And I was really only a little sad about one of them or two of them. And even those, you know, like big deal. And uh, that's because I believe in abolishing restaurants. Abolish restaurants. We're going to talk about that later on. But first, we're going to talk about a restaurant that we don't want to abolish um, even though I probably won't eat there ever again. Uh, it's called Action Burger. I'm not sure. what. All right, so having just gotten back from there and all of us being about 10 pounds heavier, would any of us go back and eat there again? Ooh, I, I mean, on the note of abolishing restaurants, I do not want to abolish Action Burger, but it came pretty close to abolishing me as a <laughs> life form this evening. I ate there maybe... 90 minutes ago, I do not feel so good right now. <laughs> you survived Action Burger, for now at least. I survived it. I ate a goodly amount of Hennessy sauce, right? That's, that's what it was. That's I, I don't thing. know. It was like Hennessy and corn syrup. It was delicious, but it's not sitting great on the top part of my stomach. I just I feel a little intoxicated, but I'm not drunk. It's just from eating too much Action Burger. So this is a comic book-themed burger joint, and it uh, is based on a comic book that you may not have heard of called Biosapien, written by the owner of Action Burger, a guy named Vlade. Vlade. Vlade Vlade or Vlad? Vlad. Vlade. The the owner and chef. And so the menu is, so the, the place is just like covered in comic book paraphernalia and memes and video games. And the menu is massive. There's like 80 things on there and like tons of options and weird stuff. And the, the menu is divided into heroes and villains. Yes. And the heroes are like healthier options. And the villains are more like fatty and junk foody options. And they correspond to some way to the characters in his comic book. <laughs> and if you go and uh, you read his comic book, he'll give you a quiz to prove that you read it. <laughs> and if you have, if you pass the quiz, he'll give you like free fries or something. <laughs> so it's a very quirky place. It's fascinating because the you can tell this guy Vlain's love uh, first and foremost is for graphic novels, science fiction, comic books. His comic book is free to download. If you go to bio/sapien.com, you can pick it up. You can of course do the promotion that Andy mentioned. Download ebooks one and two of the BioSapien series below for free. Read them. Leave an Amazon review. Take a quiz at any Action Burger. Pass and choose a free order of fries and salad. No purchase necessary. Books are good for ages 13 and up. This is primarily not, I think, so much a food service thing. I think it's to service uh, Vlain's very intensive love for not just consuming comic books and science fiction, but also creating them. Yeah, I mean... Just just one minor nitpick about what you just read, Sean. Uh, he says, Vlaine says that you can redeem your quiz results at any Action Burger, and I am 100% certain there is only one Action Burger, so that was a canny little bit of marketing. Well, you know, in order for it to be an actual Action Burger experience, you have to be served by Vlaine. Which and you we can't were. be two at uh, two places at once, so there can really only ever be one action burger. I, I think. mean, we were served by Vlaine. We were, or at least I was, starstruck by Vlaine. 
And he's just, you know, some guy. I mean, every restaurant owner on the planet is just some guy. But I think I might be in love with him, if I'm honest. And I'm, I'm not being ironical. Like, I just, <laughs> I find his strangeness and his mannerisms and his comic book presence so appealing. I feel so affectionate towards him. I, he does again, not reciprocal. He does not like us. He does not <laughs> he want anything like to us. do with me ever again. He did not look me in the eye when he was telling me where the bathroom was. We do not have a romantic connection, <laughs> but I'm going to marry him someday. <laughs> Got a lot of eye contact going on. Um, and so I just want to read some of the things on the menu to, to give an idea uh, of what you're in store for. If you go to the seamless menu, the first uh, 40 or 50 or so things are different liquor slushies and milkshakes <laughs> um some like, of which we sampled it's yeah. like reading the dictionary reading a menu here is like reading the dictionary mm. there's so much text flying at your yeah, face yeah most of them have hennessy in them um some of them are 32 ounces and some of them are larger than 32 ounces you can get one of those beer tower like beer bong kind of things um filled with liquor. one of these hennessy uh slushy drinks some of these drinks are themed after the comic book uh, one of them is called the interracial milkshake because <laughs> it has both black and blonde Oreos in it. Um. <laughs> I'm still scrolling. I'm still scrolling through the alcoholic drinks to the burger section. Okay, so I'm finally at the burger section. In, in case people think Vlaine is being like problematic on racial stuff, we should point out he is black. It's so a, it he- is a support black-owned businesses. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's the Honey Hennessy Pretzel Burger, That's which is a super action burger, which is a burger with their uh, signature 15 to 30 spice blend. <laughs> um, 15 to 30, because we're not entirely sure how many spices are in yonder spice blend. And that's what you got. Depends on the day. So we can review the Honey Hennessy Pretzel Burger in a second. There's also a chicken and waffle sandwich, a crunchy Nutella burger, which is Nutella on waffles with which bacon Rax, and burger. Rex almost got, but then uh, at the last minute, she's like, I can't fucking eat that. I could, because I have a gastrointestinal illness. <laughs> like, there are certain things I cannot do for comedy. <laughs> Uh, there's a the Jaden burger that has a, a ravioli on it and, <laughs> and a um, ravioli and okay. single ravioli. So it's important to point out that the Jaden is one of the characters in the comic book series. He is an anti-hero, um, which puts him in the hero section. But the menu is points out clearly that even though he's in the hero section, he is an anti-hero. Which is why there's a ravioli on it, which is not the healthiest option. <laughs> so really, he's not unlike Tony Soprano or Walter sure. White in as much as he has a ravioli on top of him and is a beef burger. And in the supervillains section, there's the uh, Toregon bio action burger, which uh, Sean got. It's called the, the Toragon. Toragon. Uh, the, the dining experience of that was like, how shall I put it? The Toragon was like going to synagogue and realizing you forgot your Old Testament. No, it was... Uh, <laughs> Please cut that. <laughs> it's the worst thing I've ever heard. That was a bad joke. Yeah, we do not call it the Old Testament at the synagogue. <laughs> Why don't it's you just call the it the New Testament, Sean? We only have the one. But there was an update to, to it. To be a good Jew, you must study the Old Testament. <laughs> <laughs> I am proving myself the one goy on this episode right now. <laughs> yeah, the Toragon, not great. Not great. How it many was, different meats were on it, Sean? There was uh, a 
burger and then there was somehow a slice of chicken inside the burger. <laughs> I didn't even find the, the chicken. The description is two two beef super action burgers. <laughs> Again, the super action burger is the burger with the uh, 15 to 30 spice blends. <laughs> um, you say you love action burger. Well, name all the spices. Yeah. <laughs> with one small piece of crispy chicken in the middle served on rectangular ch- ciabatta bread with pepper jack and... That's as much description as fits in the seamless description. There's more. There's a that's like half as many things as are actually on the burger. Yeah. And I tried it and it was pretty good. Yeah, Mine was fine. not as good. Yeah, and then they got uh they got wings, they got fries and tater tots. You can get the tater tots uh, and fries fusion. You can get it uh, mystery style. So lots of fun. Huge menu. Huge menu. Um, at the corner of the menu is a little a little note on the the restaurant itself by the restaurant spokesperson, Jack Cooper, who I seems to be a fictional person. <laughs> um, so yeah, fun menu, unique spot in sure. Williamsburg where so many of the places like there's a place across the street called basic that replaced a wonderful queer c- cafe that I used to work at that had a lot of character, really interesting menu uh, guys like me working there who didn't know how to cook. So sometimes you got horrible food, um, so, you know, taking a lot of the, the heart out of food service by replacing it with these really cookie cutter, maybe they're not like, you know, McDonald's or Dunkin' Donuts or whatever, but someplace like Sweet Chick where there's just like yeah. eight of them all over the city or Chian where, um, there might as well be like one company called like reclaimed wood international that right. has in <laughs> Copenhagen, Rome, New York city, Portland, Oregon, Mexico City, I don't know where else, like Tokyo, has basically franchises that exist that look exactly the same. It's like antlers and reclaimed wood, and everything's like kind of bistro format. Like all of these restaurants look exactly the same. They have all the same vibe to them. They're all like small businesses owned by independent people, but this whole aesthetic and this whole restaurant style is so cookie cutter at this point in time, especially in like quote unquote hip neighborhoods, that there's really no variety whatsoever. Yeah, Except an action burger, which, yeah. I mean, we are ribbing it right now because it's eminently ribbable, but it's just a delightful place that I've never, I can honestly say I've never seen anything like it anywhere else. Yeah, Vlaine is not reclaiming any wood. He, <laughs> he has never reclaimed a wood. He's reclaiming Capcom games from 20 years ago and putting <laughs> them in his restaurant for you to play for free while you eat. He's a, he's a bona fide crank. I mean, this is what I find charming about it, right, is that... Again, these restaurants, they try to be quirky. You know, they'll, people bring in, like, you know, photographs. The owners will bring in photographs that are, like, funny and interesting, try to bring a little personality into it. But it's all so much the same. This guy is a bona fide American crank. Yeah. And when he's expressing himself, he's expressing himself. And he does it wonderfully, and there's nothing like it. So, yeah, if, uh, if he didn't pour all of his non-comic book writing energy into this restaurant, he would have been like L. Ron Hubbard, or right. he could have been a Trotskyist who I'd write a book about, <laughs> or something like that. But he, I think, you know, as far as it goes, burger entrepreneur is a pretty good thing to do with that crank energy. Yeah, for sure. Well, America is, is a fascinating place. One of the great things about America is how conducive it is to crankery. I mean, think about American history and even think about America today, full of really interesting and fascinating and unique types of crank. You know, everybody knows one. There's a town crank everywhere. I feel like America is very, like, uh, good at producing these people. And one of the things that they can do is open, like, a weird-ass business to do weird-ass things with. 
I've worked for these many times. I was thinking about this earlier because Sean was talking to me just waxing poetic about different types of cranks. <laughs> and, I love types of cranks. And I mean, but like the thing is, Vlaine, the owner of Action Burger, he could have opened a furniture store. He could have opened any number of different types of place to supplement his comic book habit. It just happened to be a restaurant. And I've worked for about a million of those. People who own these offbeat, bizarre little places who are themselves offbeat, bizarre little people that you just would never find anywhere else. And for all that they are a nightmare to work for, there's something charming and magnetic about them that I think is in its way worth preserving, even if the form of the restaurant probably is not. Yeah, we sh- we'll get into talking about, uh, we've read the Pearl.info pamphlet about abolishing restaurants. I mean, behind Action Burger, of course, behind any small business, especially a small restaurant, there is a hell of a lot of exploitation <laughs> and coercion and domination and uh, really shitty time for anyone who ends up working for these people just by the, shall we say, bedside matter. Just, out, just shall we say by the bedside manner of Lane, who was very brusque to us and was seemed very much more interested in reading uh, comic books at the counter, which he was doing. Can't imagine he's a great guy to work for. And that goes for, I think, a lot of these small business well, owners. Well, to be fair, I think that he immediately clocked us as a group of podcasters <laughs> and treated us accordingly. No, like, oh, fair. good, yeah, the, you're going to have a podcast where you're clowning on Action Burger. Wonderful. Yeah, this is like the 30th time. Yeah. <laughs> and um, he, I asked him a bunch of questions. So I got the vegetarian burger, the vegetarian Action Burger, um, with uh, some super action sauce or whatever. And I asked him a bunch of questions about like, oh, what can you make vegan? And like, what do you, do you have vegan milkshakes? And um, either I accidentally ordered a liquor slushy that had a bunch of extra things in it, or he just charged me a dollar for every question I asked <laughs> because the slushy I think was $20 and it came out to $25. I like- it was a 32 ounce slushy. So, you know, that's not the worst deal, but. I like your. I like the idea of you're like trying to talk to. You're trying to ask questions of this business owner, and for every one you ask, he's just like one dollar charge, yeah. one dollar charge, one dollar. In retrospect, I think that's probably what he did. That's cool and passive aggressive, actually. <laughs> but I mean, I mean not we're all you, used but. to like the exact same. You know, you walk into just about any place, a reclaimed wood place, and everybody has the same mannerisms. They're all serving the precise same sensibility. They're like. I don't know, ingratiating without being totally obsequious. They all have the same mannerisms. And for all that this person charged you a dollar per question, like, I I can't remember a single meal that I've had at any of these reclaimed wood places. I'm going to remember Action Burger for the rest of my life. Oh, 100%. And I was talking about what it might be like to work for Vlaine. And Rax, you actually had a friend who was employed there. Is that right? I did, yeah. Uh, a friend of mine who I'm not going to, I guess, out. Don't just, dox them. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I don't want to dox my friends, but I do know somebody who worked at Action Burger close to the time that it first opened. I think it opened in 2012. Uh, my friend worked there maybe a year or so after that and unsurprisingly said that he was kind of a tyrannical nightmare to work for. He was controlling and cheap and uh, 
really wanted the staff to push the comic book angle, even though it's like any sane person can tell that no customer is interested in that. <laughs> like, it's just, it's not going to work, sir. And I mean, he's the average crank small business owner. He's the guy with a very particular vision for the kind of place he wants to run and nothing, including the experience customers want to have, is going to get in the way of that. He's, <laughs> he's one of those. And what yeah. didn't he demand that they go out and promote in superhero gear? Yeah, he had, uh, at the time, we didn't see any evidence of this tonight, so maybe he ditched this. But at the time, he did have some like Party City-type superhero costumes that he would have the staff wear and uh, go outside on the street corner. It's, it's kind of a bustling street that this place is on. And he would have them hand out samples of some of the specialty burgers, which obviously a burger is an impossible food to sample. You just like chop it up into sixteenths and stick those sixteenths in little paper cups. A ridiculous thing to do. And uh, yeah, that was, that was his marketing for a time, was like wear this silver plastic superhero outfit and go outside and make people eat weirdly formulated burgers until they come inside and buy one. Sounds like kind of a horrific job, to be honest. I mean, what makes a crank a crank? Now we're doing crank philosophy. It's not just that a crank is like a weirdo. Right, A crank is like monomaniacally obsessed with something and also completely unaware, unself-aware of how like obsessive they are and how strange they come off. So he's not just a weird guy. He's like a guy that if you, if you asked him like, hey man, why are you so obsessed with all this weird comic book shit? He'd be like, what do you mean? It's just what I do. It's normal. Right. And he, he probably, I mean, again, I've worked for these before, these people who have such a vision of what their business is going to be like that they don't want to let customers get in the way of it. And I have to assume that he kind of believes everybody feels this way about comic books. And that's what his successful angle is. Because all over the menus, it says, like, this is the world's only sci-fi comic book <laughs> restaurant, which I'm not even sure if that's true. That's one of those things you could just say. Yeah, that cannot be true. That's, it can't be true, but also it's listed as a selling point. Like, look, you, comic book lover, come into my restaurant where you will finally be catered to as a person who wants to eat, what was it, heroic or villainous food? <laughs> Something like that? It was villainous, yeah. Ours I mean, was villainous, We Sean. decided before we even showed up that we were going to go full villainous. Yeah, because the villainous food is the food that sounded like it tasted good. The hero food is like turkey burgers and salad. Yeah, loser shit. No <laughs> offense. <laughs> Andy. <laughs> I was kind of calling you out there a little bit. Yeah, I didn't get the, the funnest option on the menu, the veggie burger. That's okay. You had dietary restrictions. That's all right. Um, so yeah, Action Burger um, is a very particular type of place. It's a very interesting place. The food was fine. I didn't think it was that great. I probably won't go back. But I think all three of us have some experience in our lives with working in food service, with working in restaurants before. So yeah. I think behind the veneer, and many of the listeners will know too, behind the veneer of like a quirky, fun, uh, or at least bizarre and interesting small business that serves food is usually a pretty lousy time for the employees that work there. So maybe we can use Action Burger as like an example to try to deconstruct uh, restaurants uh, under capitalism. 
I mean, I worked in restaurants. I, I don't anymore, but I did for about a decade. And my philosophy has long been that the more fun a restaurant or other food service place is to go as a customer, the more awful mm. it is to work there. Because, <laughs> you know, if you work at McDonald's, the expectation is not that you're going to have fun if you're a customer at McDonald's. It's just get in, get out, get your food along the way. But I used to work at a frozen yogurt place. I'm going to out it right now because I'm still so mad at this place. It was called Mr. Yogato. <laughs> and it was owned by a guy who worked for Mr. Elon Yagato. Musk at SpaceX. His name was Yogato, no? Yeah, Steve Yogato. <laughs> and like we had to do shit like... Uh, we had to ask the customers trivia questions, and if they got the answer right, then they would get like a 10% discount or whatever. Oh. And so, of course, every order took like nine minutes, <laughs> and we would process like 10 customers a shift and just, you know, upsell everything, shit like that. The guy who owned the place was incredibly intense and unpleasant to work for. Super fun to go there as a customer because you're like, hey, the staff are having fun. They're asking me trivia questions. There's bright colors everywhere. But we, the staff, were making like $7 an hour to whore out a good time, basically. Yeah. Was the frozen yogurt any good? It was fine. Yeah. It's, you know, frozen yogurt. <laughs> it's how good is it ever, right? It, it tasted like sour milk i mean what's it supposed to taste like we're well beyond the frozen yogurt phase remember that was a huge hit in the 90s and 2000s yeah i i caught it uh right at the height it was like 2008 that i worked there it's still there i passed by it last time i was in dc it's still thriving you know i mostly worked at vegan restaurants uh vegan and vegetarian restaurants so it's clear we're not being too hard specifically on vlaine all the vegan restaurants i worked for were owned by cranks um, you know, famously, you know, I worked at the, the V spot, which, you know, uh, that's kind of on the good end of crankery. Um, although yeah, like problems with working there for sure. Uh, but the owners were very nice people. They just like the restaurant was not, you know, like their main gig, but they wanted to make it a comedy club and they wanted, <laughs> they wanted to have all these like side businesses to it. Um, but that was a pretty good place. Um, I worked at another restaurant in Manhattan that I won't name where, um, they were, the employees were stealing from them, but nowhere near as much as the owners were stealing from the employees. I don't mean that in terms of like exploiting their labor power. I mean like stealing from the employees. So the last you know few weeks they did not get their paychecks. Um, and this was, this, there was a much, uh, that, that one I'm not sure if I can talk about, but there was a place called Pure Food and Wine. Um, that was a similar restaurant to the one I worked at where the owner, the head chef was like a celebrity raw vegan chef and she skipped town with like everybody's paycheck um, and, you know, filed charges against her. She came back to face the charges. She apologized, you know, gave some excuse for it and then did it again. This time she got arrested because she ordered a Domino's pizza with her credit card and it was a meat lover's Domino pizza. <laughs> and again, she was famous for being a raw vegan chef. So, wow. yeah, even... Talk you know, about cancel culture. Even like the most ethical, lovable vegan restaurants are run by total cranks who will fuck over their employees with drop of hat. Yeah, I worked in uh, restaurants in Manhattan and um, it was a reliable way to make cash money. It was a reliable way to like... I had tried... I'd worked in a factory outside of high school doing the, uh, the night shift 
And then I did various like office jobs and neither one really felt that great for me. So the idea of actually having a job that was social where you could, you know, talk to the customers and it is true that in a, in a well-run restaurant or at least like a, um, a decently run one, there is a sort of familial aspect to, between you and your coworkers and even sometimes towards the boss and the managers. So I did enjoy that and I sure enjoyed, especially before 2008, 2009, before the crash when I was working in Manhattan, I loved when all of the like investment bankers in downtown Manhattan would all come in for brunch and I'd walk out with like $350 cash. That was my favorite part of the entire thing. But I worked in some good restaurants and I worked in some bad ones. The camaraderie was great. Uh, the Probably the worst restaurant experience I had was at a place that no longer exists. It's called Enoteca. was called Enoteca. And it was some famous pizza chef opened it up. Owned by Brian Eno. Owned by, <laughs> I wish. I mean, I would be honored to have Brian Eno as a shitty restaurant boss. But um, yeah, like it sucked so bad. You had to wear like uh, like white linens, uh, like, a, like a white uh, dress shirt, and you had to have a white apron. So that was a pain in the ass. I was Why constantly... do they do that to servers? Every food is not white. They... Why is white the official <laughs> color of being a server anywhere? It should be camouflage. <laughs> literally or like red or like beige like the carpets that you see in like uh in offices or whatever yeah like you had to i i spent like three or four hours a week bleaching my whites for this job uh they put me on the lunch shift and i would make probably like 40 or 50 dollars but the way they set up the menu was that it was all these like italian type tapas but there were no descriptions on anything so they literally had you run through everything on the menu by your voice, like to the people every time. So I had to memorize this entire menu. Long story short, the owners were fucking coke monsters. They were insane people. They weren't even cranks. They were like frat boys or whatever. And so that was, I mean, working in restaurants eventually became really old. As I got to be like 30 years old, I was like, I don't really want to do this anymore. And I moved on from it. But, you know, restaurant work, I think, is like, is pretty reliable for people in this country. Or at least it has been until recently. Uh, in terms of a way for like somebody without too many skills, somebody who like, you know, is personable enough um, to make like a decent buck in this country, at least in like the non-corporate restaurants, you know? I mean, it, I think it's, I have worked in corporate restaurants before. It's the same in corporate restaurants. Okay. Really, the, the only difference between the one and the other is sensibility and aesthetics and how much people feel good about supporting your restaurant when it's, you know, a corporate-owned place or a chain place versus, you know, owned by world-famous pizza chef, Coke monster, frat boy dude, which yeah. is somehow better. I somehow don't know. better. I don't understand how people come to the value judgments that they inevitably come to when they're deciding which is the good restaurant versus which is the bad because it's rarely about, like how much they like the food at one place versus the other. It's always, it always seems to come down to who do I want to support? Right. And that's, that's the trap of it, right? Is it does not matter who you support. Your money is funding some asshole regardless. Yeah. And, and restaurants are the, like the, the very end of this consumption, this, this value chain that, that starts with like highly exploitative um, conditions uh, and wages when it comes to like the actual production of the food stuff itself mm -hmm. to the transportation of that, which uh, you've lent me a book recently talking about truck driving in the United States and some drivers working and making a hundred dollars a week transporting food and stuff around the country, highly exploitative carriers who, um, 
you know, set up these training programs where truckers uh, think they're going to make a lot of money and they end up getting completely ripped off, burnt out, using their own credit in order to try to become truck drive truck owners and eventually just being discarded. 112% turnover per year in the trucking industry. So the yeah. by the time the food gets to the restaurant and it's in front of you and it's served, it's already passed through so many of the the mutilating, disgusting conditions of modern day capitalism that like that last experience might feel like a good one. In fact, it might be a good one, but the entire like value chain is just filled from top to bottom with horrors. I mean, that exact model applies all the way down the supply chain into the restaurant itself. That model where you, the worker, think that there is potentially a lot of money at stake because you've heard the mythology of people who have had great success waiting tables in restaurants. Some friend of yours works in a Michelin star place right. as a server and is bringing home hundreds of dollars a night and, you know, didn't have to go to college for it, just had to have a certain demeanor. And you think that's possible for you and maybe on some fantasy level it is. But the reality is that restaurant work is unpredictable because the restaurant industry is unpredictable and bosses have successfully passed a good chunk of that unpredictability on down yes. the line to the people who work for them so that, I mean, for example, servers, the tipped minimum wage is, what, 2 or $3 mm -hmm. an hour, and you just have to hope that you have a lot of tables that night and that they feel like tipping you heavily that night. You, it's an economy built largely on hopes that are dashed all the time. Yeah, it's supposed to be some sort of meritocracy, right? You get in there, and I remember at some restaurants, uh, you wouldn't pool the tips. Right. It would be up to the hostess to like see people in different uh, tables, and each person would do their own tips and then tip out a runner or the bartender or whatever. Right. Then you'd have each other. You're, you're like all moving food around and talking to customers on this floor, and you'd have like servers fighting with each other over, like, how come you got that good table and I got this one? But even when you're pooling tips, like there's this element of like self-exploitation to the entire thing because you know that ultimately if you don't hustle for those tips, then it's going to hurt. But it's like a false meritocracy at the same time because this is the kind of service, obviously – with tipping in the United States, like it's really the only one where your your wages are purely dependent on what the consumer decides it is that you should have at the end of it, like their happiness with your service. And that can be a good thing because that could allow you to overpay uh, your your server or bartender, um, and legally that should go directly to them or your delivery person. I've worked uh, at some point most positions in restaurants. Um, and they all suck for different reasons. Like I was a bus boy at this one place where I did all the work except for take the order. Mm. You know, like I, ref I brought the food out. I, you know, re refilled the, the drinks, all, all that stuff, you know, made the drinks. Uh, all the, the server did was take the order. And of course the server gets 80% of the tip. Right. Um, and then I've also worked in the kitchen and the kitchen is, so the, all these issues you're talking about are front of the house front issues. House. Right. The kitchen um, when you're in the front of the house, you know, you get, if it's really busy, you get paid better. Or if you're delivery, um, and you're getting tips, you get paid better. Uh, if you're, you know, if there's a huge rush, the kitchen gets paid the same. Right. Uh, so, so a, a rush or a slow day is the same to them. Um, and that's, there's no coincidence that I think the most restaurants that you walk into in New York, at least, 
uh, the people working in the kitchen are probably people from Mexico or Central America or from, from Asia, recent immigrants, getting paid probably the minimum and being worked way, way harder. Right. There's this famous tension in like every restaurant between front of house and back of house mm-hmm. because the individuals working in the two fields, and they are pretty much separate fields, mm-hmm. they have diametrically opposite goals. Back of house wants it to be slow and steady. And I mean, you know, there are plenty of back of house, like line cooks and chefs who like cooking, but you don't like it under these like in the weeds, hard rush circumstances. You like it when it's slow and steady. And you, again, like Andy says, you don't get paid more when it's not. So the ideal back there is slow and steady front of house. You do not make enough money to live when it's slow and steady. You want to have a rush. You want to have, you know, 200, 300 covers a night in a big place. You want to turn them and burn them. Right. And so, I mean, famously, back of house and front of house are always butting heads. And, I mean, who gets left out of the butting heads? The boss and the manager. Because they, the stakes are the same for them regardless. I mean, the boss wants it to be busy. They want there to, they want to maximize their profits, obviously. But they don't have to be in that day-to-day battleground dealing with the day-to-day rush or day-to-day slowness. Well, I mean, and this gets down to the, the, the central reality, which is that um, food service, whether you're front of house or back of the house, is, um, is production. You're doing production. Right. You know, you're not just producing the food, but also producing the experience. And um, in that sense, of course, like waiting tables or working as a line cook or whatever is... Um, you know, is, is labor like anything else is. And to put it in this weird category where it's like, oh, well, that's just food stuff. You're supposed to do that when you're young or you're supposed to do that if you're, you know, I don't know, like a woman or you're supposed to do this, whatever. Um, you know, it, it's, 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 uh, it's wage labor like any other. And it's often under very brutal conditions. 110 degrees back there in the kitchen, right. man. You know, like burn, they, the, the chefs burn themselves all the time. The servers have back problems. The bartenders too. It's, it's a rough industry. I mean, even from the point of view of the customer, who arguably is getting the ideal version of the restaurant experience of everybody who interacts with the restaurant, the customer is still having a weirdly antisocial experience from Mm. the moment they walk in the door. A restaurant is this strange limbo between public space and private space. As soon as you go in, you are seated solely with the people that you intend to eat with in this little private sector of the restaurant. A person comes over to you and is essentially your servant for the evening. I mean, the term that we use for them now is even server. You make little demands of them. You can be as polite and pleasant as you want, but you are still telling another human being, you know, bring me a steak or whatever, bring me a sandwich. And they do it. Like, in what other sector of society is that something that's expected in what other realm do you some jerk off get to walk into a place and make demands like this and they happen and you get to be angry when they don't happen exactly as you want if your steak comes out and it's not cooked the right way you just send it back it gets thrown away i mean domestic servants really is like the closest analog to it but you're right it happens in public, but not quite in public. And, and that's, restaurants like that are a relatively new thing historically, right? Yeah, I mean, the earliest restaurants, or 
I, I don't know how applicable this is universally, but in the Western world, the earliest restaurants date to Paris just, just prior to the revolution. And they weren't the little cafe type settings that we're familiar with now. They were these like walk up booths that served broths. Mm. Like heavily diluted, or not diluted, uh, heavily concentrated bone broths that were supposed to be restorative to sick people. And they were themselves called restaurants. You know, the word restore is right in there. And uh, in point of fact, the cooking of food to be consumed publicly was left to these specialized guildsmen. You had, you know, bakers and butchers, people whose job it was whose job it was exclusively to prepare food for you to eat publicly and you also had host tables you know for travelers there were these inns and you would hope that you showed up right at dinner time when dinner was being served and the person cooking the dinner would eat it with you and i mean if you didn't happen to show up right when the meal was being served and there was no food left then you just didn't eat mm. it wasn't like a restaurant where you walk in anytime they're open and they have to make you food there so, was like one service. You would yeah. show up for one service. Yeah, you would show up for the dinner service, hopefully. And you would hope even to be like seated right where they put down the food because if you weren't close enough to it, somebody else might get a better portion than you and you were just stuck with, you know, bones and gristle. That was just, and you know, the God help you if you wanted to complain to customer service about it. There was no customer service. The customer was not always right. And gradually, the experience of attending a restaurant, being seated with your dining companions, this all became more and more elaborate. The menu came into being. There were no menus before the restaurants of Paris in the late 1700s, early 1800s. And uh, it became this, ex this really rarefied experience for anybody who could afford it, which is kind of a loaded statement I guess but that was that in itself was new you know before then the people who were having fancy meals prepared just for them were the aristocracy right. it wasn't just any you know merchant or person with two coins to rub together who could happen to afford a veal cutlet so the restaurant itself arises really exactly alongside the rise of capitalism an aristocrat would have like the, a personal chef at home and um, they would obviously have like their own setup or whatever, but the restaurant that is a deeply capitalist institution. Right. The experience of being fed privately, but also publicly, that, that was new alongside capitalism. I mean, before that, if you were being fed personal meals just for you, it was probably in the privacy of your own home or someone else's home. You weren't going out in public and demanding the food that struck your fancy. And I think that a lot of the foodie culture and a lot of the sort of conceptualization of going out to eat as like a major leisure activity, like an essential thing that you do to spend your money and your free time comes from this desire for this or this nostalgia for like a pre-restaurant like home cooked meal mm. like the idea like a lot of restaurants uh, have have concepts of being um having a community table or uh you know the chef comes out and talks to you or the the server is really nice to you uh, i think what people really want is just to eat food made with 
or by their friends or their family. They want like the love that comes with sharing food together and, you know, or like the farm to table trends or the slow food trends um, comes from this nostalgia for when the, the kale that you were eating was just picked right, right. from outside. Right. Um, I don't think people really like restaurants per se. Uh, they just miss the sharing this human experience of eating together. Yeah, and I think one thing they also like too, and this is something that I think restaurants do relatively well, despite the sameness that we were talking about of so many restaurants, is that it's a joy and it's wonderful that under capitalism, under the type of society we live in today, you can, if you have enough money, if you have the money for it, you can get this vast variety of interesting and good foods. And that, I think, is something that we want to treasure. I mean, is, that's one of the best things about cosmopolitan bourgeois oh, culture. Yeah. It's nice that, to have salt. Yeah, I don't need 18 to 30 spices, <laughs> but just having a handful is pretty nice. You know, it's, I agree with you hundred percent though. It's like, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not just the food. It's, it's this experience and it's trying to draw back to a time when like things were more communal and more collective. And so then the question is like, how do we get to the point where we can have that experience, but not have a small business owner or a large corporation exploiting the shit out of everybody in order for us to get that. I mean, I think that in part it does come down to this, this question, I don't know, this question of etiquette, I almost want to say, because we do all understand that we cannot go to a friend's house and be like, I know you're home, make me a chicken parm. Like that's, there are about 35 reasons that that is just not something that's on the table to do. But you can do that at a restaurant. You can go to a pizza place during their operating hours and say precisely that and give them a small amount of money and they'll do it. And I think that one reason that we've become so attached to restaurants is that that precise experience is also available to the average person at a relatively low price point. Mm -hmm. That most luxury experiences cost a luxury experience amount of money. If you want to travel and stay in resorts, if you want to go to, I don't even know what the fancy stores are anymore, the, what, Saks or whatever, and buy yourself a cashmere sweater, it's going to cost in the thousands of dollars. Most restaurants do not operate on that same price point. They're not as expensive as other equally luxurious experiences. The average person can get any food made for them at any time that restaurants happen to be open and not have to spend too much money. And so we've begun to feel, as exploited workers ourselves, that that is our right. It's our mm -hmm. right to blow off steam in this way because it is accessible to us. It's so cheap that we feel we shouldn't have to give it up. Or um, not even talking about luxury items, but just... Like, for example, owning a home or starting right. a family or, you know, these things that maybe our parents were able to do a little bit easier than us, you know, in general speaking. Um, we can't really, people our generation are much less able to afford, uh, but we can afford like 
the best pho in Northern Brooklyn <laughs> or, you know, uh, a, like a, a vegan steak or something like that, or like a really, really nice cocktail with like a special flower in it or something like that. Like we can afford these things. We can't afford a house. No, no. <laughs> well, uh, and it gets, and it gets, you're talking about historical changes too. It's like, I'm old enough. I'm old enough to remember when, you know, when I was a kid, I think our family got Chinese food on Christmas Eve. And I think we got pizza maybe once a month or twice a month or something like that. In terms of going out, we really didn't do it. And we weren't like poor or anything. We were like middle class, lower middle class or whatever. Just because it was assumed that like most meals would happen inside the house. With the changes that have happened over the last like 35 or 40 years with um, mothers, women entering the workforce, uh, with the kind of collapse of the nuclear family in many cases, and with the necessity for there to be like for both uh, people within the home to be working uh, and working a lot and the decline of good steady jobs that are only like 40 hours a week. Capital has been able to colonize this part of life that used to happen within the home as a form of social reproduction of the family reproducing itself with this food. It now happens outside of it and it's now a commodity. It's now something we go off and buy. So this goes again back to what Andy was talking about with like this sort of experience or feeling of communal dining that we're trying to get from it what we're trying to reproduce is like i suppose an earlier era either earlier in our lives or earlier in history when like you would sit down you'd have the time and the ability to sit down with your family or your friends or your family and your friends everybody all together and like share a wonderful meal together and have that happen like outside of the commodity nexus like happen inside the home and we very few people have that nowadays yeah, it's almost become preferable to have that experience outside the home. We like value the experience of going to a fine restaurant and being cooked for, being served more than we value the experience of cooking together. And I they've they've woven themselves into our sensibilities and the lives that we desire to lead really seamlessly. And I mean, at this point as Andy was saying, you know, we can't afford homes, we can't afford families, but we also know that we're not, you know, one or two chicken parms away from being able to afford a home or afford a family. So it's just this endless trap of like, well, I might as well. I might as well take some people out to go eat because what the fuck else am I going to spend $40 on? It's, as I was saying, like, it's this price point that is deceptively low to the point that we are willing to turn a blind eye to the exploitation that's baked into that low price point. Plus we need it too, right? I mean, like that's the one thing about food is not only is it very desirable to have different types of food and really, really good food. Not everybody can cook, of course, but it's also this thing that's a human necessity, which makes the perversities of like the food service industry even more glaring because we know that we're sitting here in New York City, you know, in the year 2021, when there's food scarcity, something like 2 billion, 3 billion people don't always have enough to eat all the time. There's this sort of super abundance of food that's created, especially in America, but in the, you know, advanced capitalist countries in general that we now take for granted. So like you, you get that $20 chicken parm, sometimes you even just get it delivered to your house. You know, you, you maybe eat half the thing, you maybe throw the other half out. But like food is like, it's a human right, of course, and it's not treated as such. Certainly not in the restaurant industry and certainly not in America or anywhere in the world right now. And I think that the fact that people do need to eat and it is a 
part of a good life to eat good food. So it's, you know, you're doing a public service by working at a restaurant if you, the food is good there, which is not always the case. Um, <laughs> Actually. Uh, but like, I think that those elements of working in food service gives workers uh, as well as management and own, owners a lot of pride. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so it should. Uh, so I guess uh, with that point, maybe we can turn to the argument to abolish restaurants. Abolish restaurants. Um, from Prol.info, yes. uh, which is, they write from a Marxist perspective, a revolutionary Marxist perspective, in a way that is so clear and yeah. so popular without losing, without vulgarizing yeah. Marx or revolutionary history. Yeah. That is just, the for me, the gold standard 100%. of propaganda. The, and The housing monster, which is the one yeah. they wrote about construction work and housing, is like... Bon appetit. So yeah, everyone, please check out prol.info. That is the website there. They have PDFs of the housing monster, abolish restaurants and work community politics war, which is just a, a like comic, uh, propaganda, uh, tract about revolution. That is so incredible. Um, and you know, these have like really good Gerd Arndt style, uh, isotopic illustrations mm-hmm. that are really cool. Um, you've probably seen them before, Pro.info. Uh, but we're going to talk about Abolish Restaurants, which is a, a really effective text because at restaurants I've worked at, um, people tend to pass around this pamphlet, maybe just out of curiosity, maybe as a way of like venting their frustration. Uh, but this is like a, a really brilliant Marxist text that uh, analyzes the food service industry um, the history of it, the dynamics of it, front of house, back of the house, a lot of stuff we've been talking about in a way that doesn't separate it from broader, the broader capitalist economy and capitalist production and calls not for unionizing your restaurant <laughs> or um, making a collective restaurant, but for getting rid of restaurants as part of a broader deepening proletarian struggle against capitalism. Yeah, 100%. I mean... Uh, if you work in a restaurant, check it out, maybe print it out. But, um, I mean, the question is like, what can be salvaged, right? We're talking about abolishing action burger, right? That sounds like a a tall order and all, but like, what, like, how can that be done? And how, how can we salvage something from that? I think uh, action burger needs to be abolished last. Okay. The last one to go. We abolish, uh, we abolish some like German beer hall first (laughs) and action burger last. I mean, for all the reasons that we've talked about, you know, the exploitation, the fact that uh, restaurants are part of this chain of value production, uh, that um, ultimately the way that the work is set up, you know, this hierarchical way in which the work is set up for profit means that ultimately there's no way to like fix it per se, right? There's no like reformist option. Right. Um, That I think is important because I think the restaurant question really opens up, I think like... To say abolish, to say abolish restaurants is to say like abolish something we all enjoy, right? Yeah, I think it's one of the things it's provocative. That the most number of people are going to be the least willing to let go. So maybe it's the most important then, you know, for that reason. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Oh, we have to abolish a lot of things we enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> Let's put that on the table right away. Well, well let me just say that like the co- cosmopolitan um, bourgeois world, one of the greatest things that it created was the, the restaurant. You know, we all love it. We all enjoy it despite all of its flaws. And so by shoot, going right at that and saying like, no, actually this form of like value production and also consumption 
ultimately like there's no salvaging it i think it's an important and provocative um sort of like rhetorical thing to say that if you have these enterprises which are built on that exploitation built on uh, the coercion of wage labor and everything like that that they cannot be actually at the end of the day salvaged i think that's really really good and important final thoughts am i going with my final thoughts? sure if you'd like well instead of final thoughts why don't you just tell us what you think of the tax yeah, I mean, I agree with it wholeheartedly. I think the restaurant is beyond repair, as not even beyond repair. It came into being as an institution that could not be repaired. And uh, I've worked in a million of them, so I feel pretty confident saying so. I've eaten in a million of them, and I really like going out to eat, so I don't want that opinion to sound like, you know, I'm being a scold from my little mountain of only ever cooking for myself and whatnot. And I am, in fact, a food writer, so it's a little bit complicated because the abolishing of restaurants gives me one less thing to write about. But the degree of severe exploitation is baked into the restaurant completely. It's baked into the supply chain. I mean, the pamphlet points out that one big alienating factor of restaurants is that the final product, the meals, comes almost completely assembled to the restaurant. Like the the food has already been grown. The cattle for the beef have long ago been slaughtered. Everything is brought to you. And the products that you're making is something that needs to be consumed within moments of its being made. So there's just no way to run a kitchen in a non-exploitative way because you need to work the people in there past the point of reason to get meals out hot and on time to the customer's expectation. I mean, there's just, there's no way around any of the exploitation. There's no unionizing that. There's no turning it into a collective. It just, it's unfixable. Uh, One thing that was not really explored in the pamphlet that I would have liked to see the writer's opinion on is the, I guess, aesthetics of the restaurant. The reasons that, like, hip, quote-unquote, upwardly mobile people favor these reclaimed wood places so much and the reasons that, you know, those same people find Waffle House distasteful Mm. when really the two establishments are equally distasteful, equally exploitative, I, it's not so much that I don't think I would agree with the take that the writer has. I just wanted to see it explored a bit. Mm. Maybe you need to write uh, Abolish Restaurants too by the Racks King. Well, I have a little bit in my newsletter. I've, I've touched on some of this stuff from, a, more, from the same historic perspective of looking at the, the early Parisian restaurants and the way that that private public space has both stayed the same but also mutated and the ways that it alienates not just the people who work there, although I think that's pretty obviously the most severe alienation that happens in a restaurant, it's alienating to the people who eat there. It's not natural, this experience that I've talked about time and time again on this podcast of going to a place and ordering people around and eating food you did not make yourself, probably cannot make yourself, All of this is unnatural, and I think that it's really worth it to us as people who probably most of us enjoy restaurants, it's still worth it for us to say to ourselves, okay, this is antisocial. This is not what being a human is about. I am not engaging in a human way with the people who work here or the food that is prepared here. 
Yeah, I mean, that's, that's central for me. I actually, funny little story, I read this pamphlet uh, some years ago, and then I was taking a class with a guy named Vivek Chibber, who people may have heard before. And uh, he invited a bunch of us out to coffee and we got onto the restaurant question and he was talking about like, well, we could unionize servers, we could make sure they get paid a decent wage, we can make sure the back of the house gets like a decent amount of money too. And because of this pamphlet, I was able to say to him, um, isn't the point of socialism or communism actually the social relations? And is there any way that under quote unquote socialism or communism, you could have a situation where one person's job that they make money for, that they're coerced into doing, otherwise they starve. Their job is to serve somebody else food. And he actually, to his credit, said, no, you're right. Like the point of communism isn't to like, or socialism isn't to merely like um, make things less exploitative or do like self-exploitation of ourselves or to like share the profits around to everybody. It's, it's fundamentally about changing the social relations of production. And so that's, I think, what this, um, this essay, this, this pamphlet points us towards is, again, thinking about even these beloved things that we enjoy, understanding them in a, in a structural sense and understanding that like value production needs to be eliminated and also so do these like coercive hierarchies that exist and if you have that uh you're not creating human freedom you're not creating human flourishing no matter how good the food might taste yeah i mean to my mind if just one last thing public eating always has existed public eating always will exist i think that it is a beautiful thing to venture out into the public sphere alone or with a loved one or whatever and eat food that somebody who's really good at cooking has prepared. I mean, I think that it's just obvious. Some people are always going to love to cook. Some people will always be skilled at cooking. And there's no avoiding this need for the occasional public eating. What I think is unsalvageable is this this alien space, this public-private space does not exist anywhere else, the restaurant, that really, when you sit down and think about it, bears no resemblance to just about any other form that public eating has taken over the years. Also, I think food is just much better not from a restaurant. Like, obviously, some of your, you might be a bad cook or your friends might be a bad cook, but like, over the last year, there's been like this big explosion of people baking bread and selling mm-hmm. it on Instagram, like our friend Tony Boswell. Stuff that's not mass produced, and all capitalism, all businesses have a tendency towards consolidation and mass production, um, is higher quality. It's more rooted in the ingredients and the production. Um, so, just in terms of like having a good meal, you're much more likely to have a good meal that you just make like at a potluck you know mm-hmm. like potluck is probably going to be a better meal than whatever michelin rated restaurant you go to or like if you're traveling like sometimes when i've been traveling in, in latin america i've noticed that like the michelin rated restaurant is the same price as the average restaurant in new york so i go to the fancy place and it's usually worse than like the cheaper option just because it, it's for rich people and rich people have bad taste. <laughs> um, and uh, maybe I'll just, unless you have anything else to add, I'll just close it with a, a couple points from the conclusion yeah. of Abolish Restaurants. Oh, I'm good. Rax King, thank you for coming oh, on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Anytime. We're welcome. We're happy to come on Low Culture Boy whenever you'd like. Yeah, you're going to have to. It's yeah. my turn now. <laughs> yeah, so just a couple points from the conclusion. One is um, they, they acknowledge that 
Restaurants aren't strategic. They aren't a hub of value creation in the capitalist economy. They are just one battlefield in an international class war that we're all a part of, whether we like it or not. And as a very practical point, they talk about how in Spain in 1936, millions of workers armed themselves and took over their workplaces. Restaurant workers took over their restaurants, abolished tips, used restaurants to feed the workers' militias going off to fight the fascist armies. And then... Just to read the last paragraph of the essay, we aren't just fighting for representation in or control over the production process. Our fight isn't against the act of chopping vegetables or washing dishes or pouring beer or even serving food to other people. It is with the way all these acts are brought together in a restaurant, separated from other acts, become part of the economy, and are used to expand capital. The starting and ending point of this process is a society of capitalists and people forced to work for them. We want an end to this. We want to destroy the production process as something outside and against us. We're fighting for a world where our productive activity fulfills a need and is an expression of our lives, not forced on us in exchange for a wage. A world where we produce for each other directly and not in order to sell to each other. The struggle of restaurant workers is ultimately for a world without restaurants or workers. Oh, yeah. Blaine, you heard it here. We're coming for you last. (laughs) 